Good morning, ministers. Let me start out today by saying that I recognize this has been a very intense a couple of weeks as you've had an opportunity to witness me fighting, engaging in spiritual warfare for the souls of God's people. I know it's been intense and I want to thank every person who may be struggling with any type of sexual immorality or anything like that. I want to thank you for staying with me through this series. Thank you for your patience and thank you for your courage. To sit still and listen to the word of God is very important and God will bless you for it. We're in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14, actually to the end of the chapter, is at once one of the most creatively paradoxical texts in all of the New Testament. As the writer of Hebrews seeks to strike a fine balance between the overflowing love of God and the severity of God's judgments in one theological leap, the love of God but the severe judgment of God all in one leap. The writer of Hebrews is attempting to pacify that existential fear that keeps men from seeking God. And yet in the same breath, the writer seeks to keep us on our toes so that we don't become so cozy with God that we jeopardize our own standing before him. This text is primarily a text about holiness before God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And yet it begins with an admonition to follow peace with all men. And there is a cue we should take from the fact that this discussion of holiness focuses much more on maintaining peace with God than it does with maintaining peace with men. Holiness is more important than maintaining peace with men. Holiness is more important than maintaining peace with men. And the symmetry between these two motifs Peace with men and holiness to God cannot be overlooked in this particular text. The writer begins by saying, follow peace with all men. To follow peace means to pursue harmony. To follow peace means to put forth every effort to create and maintain a social environment of tranquility for yourself and for your neighbors. To follow peace means that your neighbor should not be made to feel uneasy by your presence in the community. In fact, according to the text, my neighbor should be made to feel at ease and even more so because of my presence. The social vision for every child of God should be to foster an environment that naturally lends itself to the peace and prosperity of all people. 
That should be every child of God's vision. And we are not only called to give lip service to this harmonious ideal, but we are called by God to work toward peace with all men. Follow peace with all people. But what should this practice of peace look like? What does the pursuit of peace actually entail? Our commitment to the pursuit of peace with all people means that we will be conscious and intentional to respect every person's liberty to journey through this life in whatever manner they believe will bring them the greatest joy. We are to respect every person's decision to live their life any way that they choose. It means, it means that we will not harass or in any way impede a person's quest to live the lifestyle she believes is best for herself. Follow peace. As pursuers of peace, we endeavor to ensure the liberty of every person to pursue the path that they choose and to always offer them the path that leads to eternal life. Whether or not they accept the invitation is totally up to them. And the Church of Jesus Christ has been given no mandate to coerce or manipulate anyone to follow the path that we recommend. And this is the harmonious unwritten contract that I am to adopt as a child of God with all mankind, saint and sinner alike. To respect every man's moral, practical and personal boundaries and his rights. Their right to do as they see fit to do with their own lives, their bodies, and to whatever rightly belongs to them. I am called to follow peace with all men, but I am not called to facilitate their journey toward eternal damnation. I am called to respect and to honor everyone's choice to go the direction that they choose, but the children of God are not called to facilitate them in their journey toward eternal damnation. This is where following peace and holiness tend to collide. The Apostle Paul foresaw that there might come a day when pursuing and finding peace with all people may not be possible. And sadly enough, it appears that day has come. The peace between men is already beginning to deteriorate. So in Paul's version of this same command to follow peace found in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul adds some nuance to this social peace initiative. Paul says it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Pursue peace. Pursue peace at all times. But also understand that sometimes peace will simply not be a possibility. And whenever peace with man demands that I compromise my peace with God or my holiness, 
Whenever peace with my neighbor can only be had if I renounce my own beliefs, amend my own way of holy living, or otherwise participate in activities that betray my own conscience, that peace is not worth the price. And peace may simply not be possible. If the only way my neighbor can have peace is if I agree with or support her in the journey that she has chosen, then it is not peace that my neighbor is seeking. It is my subjugation. And the subjugation or the curtailing of my liberty in Jesus Christ will not lend itself to the peace that we both need. You see, God has not called us to ensure that other people have peace. That's not what the text says. God has not called us to ensure that everyone has peace with their choices or their lifestyles. That's not what the text says. To pursue peace is to uphold those rituals and practices that support the freedom of every human, including myself, to pursue the path that we have chosen. And children of God, we have chosen the path of holiness. The writer continues, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. That's very serious right there. Follow peace, but know what's most important. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Follow peace, pursue peace with all people, but be dedicated to God. Follow peace with all men, but be consecrated or set apart only to God. Work toward harmony with every man and woman, but stay devoted to God alone. So that if your choices are dwindled down between peace with men and holiness, choose holiness. There is a spiritual plague that is hanging over the church of Jesus Christ these days. Hopefully by the time I'm finished preaching today, you'll understand why I've been so intense in addressing this issue. There is a plague, a spiritual plague, hanging over the church of Jesus Christ. It is the plague of humanism. Humanism views peace with men as not only being the most desirable social state, but as taking precedent over devotion to the truth of God's word. It is a plague. Many children of God are willing to go to unbiblical lengths in order to ensure that humanistic peace is preserved. It's a plague. But this kind of humanistic peace, this kind of peace that Paul or the writer of Hebrews is referring to, in fact, is not that kind of peace. This kind of humanistic peace is not peace at all. It is pacification. The humanistic way of loving its neighbor is not harmony, it is appeasement. It is concession. And this kind of humanistic peace is not helpful to the kingdom of God. 
It's not helpful to the unbeliever. It's not even helpful to the believer who has mistaken his own human empathy for God's true love. God's love saves. Humanistic love comforts unbelievers. Humanistic love ensures that the unbeliever's trek toward eternal damnation will not will be as comfortable as they can possibly make it. Humanistic love escorts the unbeliever to the gates of hell in a Bentley, in the greatest of comfort. But whether you're escorted to hell in a Bentley or on a tricycle, the, the destination will be equally and eternally painful. Humanistic love does not lead to salvation. It only leads to comfort. The children of God has not been, have not been called to make unbelievers comfortable with sin. That is not our job. We are called to follow peace with all people. And we are called to pursue holiness because the person who is not holy will not see God. We can make the unbeliever as comfortable as he wants to be. We may allay all of their fears about the consequences of disagreeing with God, but the one thing that we cannot do is the thing that they need more than anything. We cannot give them eternal life. We can make them feel good about themselves. We can make them feel confident about themselves. We can make them even feel happy, but we cannot give them the thing that they need the most, eternal life. Only God through Jesus Christ will do that. God through Jesus Christ will not do that for them without repentance. A repentance that the humanist believer is thoroughly convincing them is not even necessary, working against the will of God. But the writer of Hebrews warns us right here, in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15, that we had better look diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Eternal security out the window. Every person had better look diligently lest any of us fail of the grace of God. That is a warning. Could even be considered a threat. What may cause someone to fail of the grace of God? Well, remember here, the writer is writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to believers. And he warns us that it is possible to fail to receive God's grace. And the first thing that may cause a believer to miss out on God's grace is bitterness toward God. This is humanist Christianity. Humanist Christianity wants to stand with the unbeliever and disagree with God because God will not change the rules to accommodate this person. And this person becomes bitter against God. I don't know if the word is true. I don't know if it's really infallible. I think we need to look again. I think we, bitterness toward God can cause you to fail of the grace of God. Before we get to the next verse, we need to get an understanding of the context then of Hebrews chapter 12. 
Because the context of Hebrews chapter 12 centers around God's chastisement or God's disciplining of his people. And that's what's been going on here for the last few weeks. God has been disciplining and setting things in order in his own house. And I have to read Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 13 outright so you can get the gist. The writer says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. He's saying when the hammer comes down, don't take it lightly. Don't think you can just skate by and ignore what God just said. Don't take God's discipline lightly. And do not faint when you are punished by him. Don't take your ball, your proverbial ball, and go home because you don't like what God has to say. Do not faint when you are punished by God. For whomever the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he punishes every son whom he accepts. In other words, if you cannot accept God's discipline, you will not be accepted by God. That's what he's saying. If you cannot accept God's discipline, if you just need to be right, even if it means calling God wrong, then you will not be accepted by God. Either Jesus Christ will be Lord of all or Jesus Christ will not be Lord at all. Let's keep going. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But he says, if you are without discipline, if you refuse to be disciplined, if you refuse to let God be true, even if it means you have to be a liar, if you refuse to be disciplined, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This dude is hitting hard. If you can't take God's discipline, if you can't stand still when God is talking, but I have to tell you, our God is also a consuming fire. And I've been walking with the Lord for, since I was 16, maybe 17 years old. I have experienced and known the true love of God in ways that just blow my mind to this day. But there have been times where I got my rump up on my shoulders and I started speaking in ways that were not correct, that were not proper, where God reeled me back in like a boss. God is loving, but when you get out of line, God can come down the street to find you. He is not to be taken for granted. His words are not to be taken lightly or loosely or cavalierly. We have to be cautious with that, saints. We have to be cautious that we do not become so comfortable in our own knowledge that we think we know more or we think we know better than God himself. That is not possible. That is a mistake. 
This is the reason I have been hounding this subject for the last four weeks. And you're gonna be surprised when I get a little bit further down here because the subject that you think I've been talking about is not even the subject that I've really been talking about. I know what I've been confronting. And now I'm going to say what it was. <laughs> In other words, you have failed the grace of God if you cannot accept discipline from God. You thought that God's grace was all a bed of roses, a bed of ease, and you didn't realize that sometimes, especially when you go too far astray, that God will bring swift and effective correction. You appreciate the gentleness and the kindness of God, but you balk at God's directness. Furthermore, the writer says, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Now, I didn't have an earthly father to discipline me. I'll tell you a story. One time, my brother accused me of doing something that I didn't do. Uh, and my mom was upset and she came in the room and Calvin, you're in trouble, you're gonna be in trouble. And I thought she was gonna give me a whooping. She said, when your dad gets home, I'm telling, I'm, I'm telling your father on you. He's gonna punish you. I smile, thank you. Thank you for telling my dad. Dad took me in the room. He said, listen, I'm gonna take this belt. When I hit the chair, scream out. Psh, ah, psh, ah, don't do it again, boy. Psh, ah. He's cracking up. I came out of, oh, mom said, I told you he's going to be in trouble with dad. I didn't have a dad that really was big on disciplining anybody. But the text says here that some of us have, some of us did have fathers who disciplined us. And we respected them, the text said, and we respected their discipline. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Shall we not much more be subject to God, the true father, and live? And that is a veiled warning right there, if you didn't catch it. Be subject to the father of spirits and live. Do not be subject to the father of spirits. And you get the gist. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to us. He's saying that sometimes we get too relaxed. Sometimes we think that the kingdom's throne is a debating stage where we can go and ask God, did you really mean that right there? Because that doesn't seem to fit with my culture or the era that I'm living in. Hmm. Be careful about that. Know when you've said enough. Know when you've voiced your opinion enough. And learn how to be silent sometimes before God. The writer of Psalms said, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he smite you in the way. That doesn't sound like that loving God we talk about, but that's him. Sometimes you have to just say, you know what? I'm gonna submit on this one. I don't understand, but, but I see that this is getting intense. I have tried to make the last four weeks as intense as I could, because I'm sending the warning. I am sending the warning to every child of God in the place. Know when to say enough. Know when to stop trying to negotiate with the, with the text. And when you see the text for what it says, you accept that text for what it says. Because God will overlook the sinner if he doesn't respect the text. But if you're a child of God in God's house, you better believe that daddy is coming to deal with that. He is not going to have rebellion in his own house. If you want to go outside of his house and rebel, fine. But God is not going to have anyone that is called his child that rises up against him like that, that calls him a liar, 
Verse 10 says that the father, the natural father, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Discipline brings holiness. From this verse we come to understand that if we cannot submit to correction of God when we are going astray, then we cannot be made holy by God. And if we are not made holy by God, then we will not see God. Holiness without which no man shall see God. Then transparently and honestly the writer adds this. For the moment, I know all discipline seems not to be pleasant. For the moment, for the last few weeks, I know there are some saints in this church who just preferred not to even come and hear anything about this. For the moment, the discipline doesn't feel so good. For the moment, it feels painful, especially if you have other ideas, especially if the culture is somewhat informing your perspective on certain issues. It can feel painful to be called to the carpet. I know it does. It feels painful for me having to do it. But listen to the promise. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is a reason for it. Once God has extracted my misunderstanding and my false opinions that do not align with his word or his will, I will experience peace that comes from being made more righteous. But there are believers who simply refuse to be disciplined or to be trained. There are believers who believe that the kingdom of God is a democracy. There are believers who want to rewrite the text to accommodate their personal sins or the sins of others. But God is not budging. In fact, not only is God not budging, but apparently God is beginning to turn up the heat. And one thing about God, when God discerns that there is strong resistance from his own children, he can become quite relentless in exposing it and snuffing it out for your own good. Maybe you are at this present moment going through such a season of discipline. Maybe this last couple of weeks have been very painful for you, even abhorrent in some ways, frustrating, angering, you need to ask yourself the question, why? If I have presented to you the word of God and you have become frustrated, you should ask yourself the question, why? This is the same word of God that says God is love. This is the same word of God that says God is full of grace and mercy. Why are you frustrated? It is a question you have to ask yourself before God in prayer. Maybe you're struggling with sexual immorality. Maybe you're having desires that are not biblical. And you sat through this series. I have to say I am proud of you because this has not been easy. This has not been easy. I know it hasn't. I can feel it. I can sense it. 
but it had to be done because all of us must at least know the truth. And I'm going to give you some advice after a while. If you're struggling with sexual immorality, don't be afraid. Don't be, I'm going to give you a piece of advice later on that's going to help clarify some things for you. But for those Christians who have gone through this season of discipline, because there's something that you won't let go of, there's some idea, some opinion that has become lodged in your heart that you refuse to let go of, you should be prepared. You should prepare yourself because when God calls for holiness in your life, God will bring that holiness to pass in your life for your own good, whether you are willing or not. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price and God will bring about that holiness in your life one way or another. So how must we deal with these days of discipline? How should we deal with this? The writer says in verse 12, therefore, Strengthen the hands that are weak. Stop being so discouraged because God called you to the carpet. Strengthen the hands that are weak. Strengthen the knees that are feeble. Stand up. Take your discipline like an adult. In other words, don't crumble under God's truth. Don't try to fight back against God. Accept what God is doing. Be still. Stop trying to make new arguments to hold off the inevitable. God will win, so brace yourself. Then he says in verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet. So that, listen to this, so that, I find it so humorous, so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated, but rather healed. That's cute. He's using the description of a sheep that gets caught in the thicket and his limb is stuck, he can't get his leg out, he's trying to get out, he can't get out, and the shepherd comes over and the shepherd needs to help him get out and try to, but but the sheep won't be still and he's honorary and he doesn't want to be still and take the, it it hurts and I don't want to, and it ends up the shepherd has to break that leg to get it out. He's saying you don't have to get your leg broke, just be still. And let God just unravel you from this entanglement you've gotten yourself in and he'll pat you on the rump and you can go on about your business. But if you resist, that limb may very well become dislocated like he did for Jacob. You can only wrestle with God so long before the wrestling must stop and you must submit to the medicine that God is trying to give you. And if not, that limb will be dislocated Has anyone in here ever had to have a spiritual limb dislocated because you just wouldn't listen? I have had it happen. I have had God come down the pike and say enough is enough and I refused. I have had a limb dislocated. (laughs) Get back in line. It didn't have to be this way, but you can't listen. He's coming down the pike. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated, but rather healed. In short, the writer just said, in short, the writer just said, don't make God hurt you. (laughs) Don't don't make God hurt you. (laughs) I like that. I want to be your friend. I want to be your loving father, but I need obedient children. Don't make me hurt you now. 
I'm trying to just get you to come on to the right side. Don't make this more difficult for yourself than it needs to be. I'm just giving the warning. Because we must not find ourselves getting wrapped up in this culture and these worldly ideas. We cannot afford it. And God is not pleased with this. We can't afford it, saints. We can't afford to turn our backs on the word of God trying to keep peace with men. We can't afford it. It's too high a price to pay. Look diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You're mad at God because of God's standards and because of God's unwillingness to meet you halfway on this particular subject. And you have caused God to have to rebuke you and now you're mad at God. Be careful, be careful, because God is not afraid of you. God is not afraid of your wrath. And the only one who has anything to lose in that scenario is you. God has commanded us to follow peace with all men, but God does not, listen to this, God does not follow peace with humanity. That's something he told us to do. He told us to do that because we have to live here in this world. We have to get along with the people in this world. God is not trying to get along with anyone. God is not following peace with humans. Let me just say it again to make it real clear. God is not following peace with humans. God only has one peace treaty. God only has one way by which men may find peace with him. Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, is the only peace treaty that God is going to sign off on. It's the only peace treaty that God has ever signed with mankind. Jesus Christ. And by him you can find peace with God. And every man should be pursuing peace with God. Other than this kind of peace, there is no negotiation, there is no compromise, and there is no argumentation that you can give that is going to move God. Because God actually knows what is best for all of us, better than we ever will. And every law that God has ever commanded has always been for our own good, not for his, for your good. Whether or not you understand it, Believe this, God is always right. And if you disagree with him, believe it, you are always wrong. But don't be mad about it. Don't be mad about it. Just repent and move on. And that's the first way we fail of the grace of God, by becoming bitter against God. And the second way, interestingly enough, and I did not plan this, the second way, interestingly enough, is if we practice sexual immorality. I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I cherry-picked this text to talk about peace with God. I didn't even realize that was a part of this conversation. But apparently God really wants to make it very clear to us. The second way that you can fail of the grace of God is if we practice sexual immorality. 
Look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest there be any fornicator, fornicator, any sexually immoral person. Maybe this is why I was assigned to bear down so hard on this particular subject of sexual immorality, which, which let me just say this, believe it or not, this is not one of my favorite subjects. This, is, this has never actually been a part of my ministry or my teachings. I believe it, of course, but I've never really taught on it. Sexual immorality is just one sin among many to me. I've never really paid it much attention. But God makes it known time and time again throughout the word of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that sexual immorality is not acceptable, that the sexually immoral person specifically may fail of the grace of God. But also the profane person, the text says, the profane person. This is the godless, vile, and stubborn sinner. This is, the sinner, this is the saint or the sinner who is open and accessible to whatever the world suggests and whatever the world may recommend. And then the surprising example he gives of the profane person is Esau, who for one morsel sold his birthright. For just a moment of pleasure, Esau failed the grace of God. He became cocky. He was proud. He was boastful. He even threatened to murder his brother, Esau. Threatened to murder his brother if he didn't get his way. Profane person. The text says in verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, Esau was rejected. Esau was rejected. And why did God reject Esau? Because Esau refused to repent. That's the only reason. Because Esau refused to admit that he was incorrect and that God was right. The text says he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He sincerely wanted to change his mind, but he couldn't find the place to do it. He couldn't find repentance. He felt like God owed him something. He felt like God and his parents had no right to deny him the inheritance. And instead of humbling himself, he became more and more irate, more and more angry, more and more entrenched into his wrong way of thinking, his wrong way of viewing life and the world. And you know the story, Esau did not prevail. And just to make it clear, no man will prevail when he fights against the truth of God's word. No man, no matter who you are, no matter what you know, no matter what you think you know, you will never prevail against the truth of God's word. God does not regard haughtiness. God does not regard pride as a means to access his grace. Okay, okay, here we go, here we go. What have I been trying to teach us over these past few weeks? as it relates to sexual immorality. What have I been trying to teach us? First of all, that sexual immorality is sin. And that any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. Full stop, no compromise, no more discussion. That's the end of that. It's too clear in the text. We don't need to talk about it much, much more. Sexual immorality is sin, full stop. But, if you've been following very closely, maybe you caught this, maybe you didn't. 
If you didn't catch it, then today I want to give you the plain explanation. Brothers and sisters, sexual immorality has been only the subject of this series, kind of like, kind of like a frog in a science lab. When in high school, they take you and they give you the frog and you dissect the frog and you're learning all the different parts of the frog. You think you're learning about the frog. You know what the purpose of that class really is? To teach you how complex organisms work. It's not even about the frog. It's about something much broader, something much bigger. This whole series has not really been about sexual immorality. It's about something much bigger, something much broader. Anybody want to take a guess what it is? Sexual immorality is just one more sin among the many sins in the world. Sexual immorality has probably been around since the book of Genesis. Just like every other sin, sexual immorality can be repented of and God will forgive. Sexual immorality is not special in any way. So why did I decide to focus so squarely on these kinds of sins? I did so because this particular sexual revolution that we are witnessing in the world has created a philosophy that seeks to insulate itself from the judgment of God. This new sexual revolution is arrogant, intractable, proud, and aggressive. And God knows that the people who are lulled into reliance on its definitions, its principles, and its philosophies are going to have a nearly impossible time finding their way out once they've indulged. The pride of the movement is a spiritual straitjacket that while it may be easy to put on, it's virtually impossible to escape from. And our children and anyone who finds this series needs to understand the gravity of the error, error of this new sexual revolution and do not partake of it. It is dangerous. And it's dangerous not because it's sexual immorality. It is dangerous because it is filled with pride. And do you know what God hates more than sexual immorality? Do you know what God hates more than lying? Do you know what God hates more than stealing? God detests pride. The arrogant man and woman will not stand before God, period. The sexually immoral have a chance. But the ones who buy into this philosophy that is being propagated in schools and in the country today, they will not stand before God because this thing has said it can insulate itself from God's judgments. It can insulate itself from the truth of God's word. It cannot be touched. I've touched it over these last four weeks and I'll touch it again. It can be touched. Yes, you can be touched. Arrogance and pride will not stand before God. God hates it more than anything. He will not abide it. God will not abide this. And so, what is the moral for all of us today? I want to wrap it up with this simple example. That there are basically three kinds of sinners in the world. If you haven't listened to anything else, please listen to this because this has been 
the way that God has brought me through the years. There are three kinds of sinners in the world. There is the saint sinner, there is the sinner sinner, and there is the wicked sinner. Let me break those down for you. The sinner sinner is the worldly person who doesn't have much thoughts about God or the devil, heaven or hell. He's just living his life, doing whatever comes naturally, minding his own business, hoping that you mind yours and keep the peace. The regular sinner, sinner. There's no rhyme or no reason behind what he does. He just does what he feels like doing, and that's the way he lives. The sinner, sinner. He keeps to himself. This person, like all of us, was born into into sin the natural way. We were all born into sin. He sees no reason to change. He doesn't much care what anybody thinks about his sin. He's doing what he wants to do. The sinner, sinner. That's most people, just sinner, sinners. But then there is this wicked sinner. The wicked sinner is the person who was born into sin and practicing sin, but has taken the time to draw up a justification for his sin. A memorandum, a thesis, that not only justifies his sin, but actually calls good evil and calls evil good. The wicked sinner, that declares light to be darkness and darkness to be light. The wicked sinner who openly exalts his opinions and his feelings above the notions and the truth of God's word. The sin, the the wicked sinner. This is the arrogant sinner, the one lifted up with pride, who avoids God's grace and views themselves greater than God himself. The wicked sinner. And over the past few weeks, it has been my role to lay waste to the wicked sinner's philosophy, to every one of his definitions, and to every one of his assertions because God hates the wicked sinner. Not the sinner, the wicked sinner. The one who is committed and devoted to sin to the point where sin is his Bible, sin is the truth, and and, and holiness is a lie. The wicked sinner, the one who intentionally works against the will of God in the world, the wicked sinner. Every person who made one of those gender definitions, every person propagating this madness around the they're wicked sinners. And they are filled with pride. And over the past few weeks, God has given me the assignment to come straight down the line and to use their own words to demonstrate that their words are irrational, unreasonable, against nature, and make no sense to God. They're liars. They are wicked sinners who have created a philosophy that is destroying lives every single day. My fight, my fight has not been against the sinner. My fight has not been against any person. My fight has been against a lying philosophy that is lulling people to sleep, bringing them into sin and sedition against the kingdom of God, building an army against the kingdom of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We wrestle against wickedness in heavenly places, and we pull it down. Not people, but wickedness. The wicked sinner. Then there is the saint sinner. 
here, here, and here is where I want to get real with you and answer a few questions. The Saint Center is really not much different than the Center Center. The Saint Center is really not much different even than the Wicked Center in a way. Saints are sinners. You all know that, right? Every saint in this room sinned yesterday. I don't even have to ask you. Saints are sinners, like everybody else. What is the difference besides repenting, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? What is the difference between the saint sinner and the wicked sinner? You know what the difference is? The saint sinner is, is a humble sinner. I want you to take this word from me today, please. If you don't take anything else, catch this. The saint sinner is a humble sinner. And that is the only difference between the saint and the sinner. The saint sinner admits that what I'm doing is wrong. The saint sinner doesn't try to write any justification or give any explanation or go to God giving any kind of excuses. The saint sinner is a humble sinner. That's the only difference. If you're practicing sexual immorality, let me tell you something. You may very well receive grace from God if you are a humble sinner. Did you hear what I just said? I have no question in my mind there are going to be homosexuals in heaven. I have no question in my mind because some of those people are doing what they're doing because they have feelings that they can't control like every other sinner if they would only be humble sinners. They could access the grace of God like anybody else. God is no respective person, but God detests an arrogant sinner. Any arrogant sinner. Any person who has the audacity to draw up an entire philosophy that justifies my sin and propagate this lie like this. If you're going to be a homosexual, if you're going to be a transgender, whatever you're going to be, don't rely on that philosophy to be it. Just be what you're going to be and be humble. And you may very well find that God may receive you, that God may accept you. God is not going to accept these people. Anybody who buys into this nonsense, these lies spawned from Satan's mouth, no, 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 that's not working. But the humble sinner, the broken sinner, that's the only difference between us and sinners in the world, saints, that we have sense enough to know when we're wrong, when we're disobeying the standard, and to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I sin, I'm a pastor. Do you know how many times I have to repent in a day? I have no, no, I have no soapbox to stand on and tell sexual immoral people, you're going to hell because you're doing, the, I do enough stuff myself. I can't send anybody anywhere. I'm a sinner too. The difference is I'm a humble sinner. Be whatever you're going to be, but please be humble. Don't step up in God's face and say, well, since I want to do this, then your word must be wrong and I must be right. Okay, now you have no mercy and now you have no grace. You cannot access the grace of God with that arrogance. God is not afraid of you. God is not worried about your movement. You do not move God, period. 
If you want something from God, you ask, and you ask in humility, and you just might get what you ask for. God's grace is radical. God's grace is radical. God's love is radical. Trust, so, so what am I saying? I'm saying trust in the grace and mercy of God. Don't trust in some philosophy that justifies sin. It's not gonna work. It's setting you up for failure. Don't trust in the world's philosophies. If you're gonna be gay, be gay. But be gay because you can't help yourself. Don't be gay because this principle says that this is the way I'm supposed to be and this is who I really am. This is who I always was and God made me this way. You just lost grace. You just failed on the grace of God because you have a reason. You have a justification. You want to make your sin make sense. Listen to me. No sin makes sense. No sin is natural. And no sin is according to the word of God. No sin makes sense. Don't try to make it make sense. Just be ignorant. You when you were a kid and your mom catch you doing something you're not supposed to do, say, why you do that boy? And you say, mm-hmm. you know I do that? Mm-hmm. When God comes to you and says, Calvin, why are you committing homosexual acts? You know what Calvin's gonna say? And he just might say, boy, you so foolish. Go on, get out of here. I forgive you, you're just foolish. Yes, yes, I'm a fool. Yes, Lord, I'm a fool. I don't know what I'm doing. I admit it, I don't know why I'm doing it. God may very well give you a pass. I'm telling you, man, God may give you a pass if you will just be a humble sinner. But if you think you're about to stand up at the throne with some kind of man-made philosophy, some social construct, and tell God about sex that he made. Tell God about sex that he made. Your arrogance will send you straight to hell. That is the truth. Did I just make that up? Did I make that up, Laura? I didn't make it up. Where did it come from? Come from Romans chapter 7. Verse 15, I'm going to show you the humble sinner. I'm going to show you the sinner who gets, who gets the mercy. This is the humble sinner. Paul is the humble sinner. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand what I am doing. I love it, man. Paul ain't got no philosophy, no definition, no principle. I'm not coming to you, God, with some book, some man made telling me about my gender. And all. That's foolishness. I don't know what I'm doing. For I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. That's the first thing. Always agree with the word of God. Always agree with the word of God. I'm sinning. The the law says I shouldn't do this. The law is right and I'm wrong. Always take that approach. Always, always take that approach. God is always right. If someone has to be wrong in this equation, it must be me. That's humble. (laughs) Always take that approach. But now, listen to this, because he is not claiming this, because he is not seeking to justify his sin in any way, he can say this, but now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. You want an explanation for your homosexuality? You want an explanation for your transgender? It's just sin that dwells in you. It was sin that dwelled in Paul. It is sin that dwells in me. 
Don't do like these people say and make your gender identity, make sin your gender identity. That is nonsense. Do not make sin your identity. Who does that but a rebellious, arrogant person? No, sin is not my identity. I may do sin, I may do all kinds of things, but I'm not gonna claim it as my identity. I'm gonna go with Paul's explanation. If I'm doing the thing that is against the law of God, it is not me even doing it, it is sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing the good is not. Do you want to access the grace of God? I don't care whether you're sexual or immoral, whatever you are. Do you want to access the grace of God? Are you struggling with sexual addiction? You can't seem to control it. Join the club. We're all struggling with some kind of sin that we can't control. You're not different, nothing to be afraid of. There is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to all people. Whatever you're, whatever you're struggling, whatever sin you're struggling with, don't, don't panic, it's not you. It's just sin that dwells in you. Take this page from Paul the Apostle. Stop trying to justify the unjustifiable. Stop being proud of something that you can't even control yourself. To not have control over your own desires is not some badge to be worn with pride, but it's a malady to be lamented in repentance. Be a humble sinner. Paul says, I'm sinning, but I don't know why. But even though the only reason he knows he's sinning is because the law told him he was sinning, he doesn't view the law as being a burden. He doesn't argue with the law. He says, law, you're right, I'm wrong, but I can't help myself. And this is the only explanation that Paul gives for his sin. He doesn't give an excuse. He doesn't give a justification. We sin, brothers and sisters, because sin is in us. Sin is in me but sin is not me. Never identify with your sin because the truth is that you were actually, if you were actually in control of your sin, then you could stop doing it if you wanted to. Don't tell me that it's you and you can't stop doing it if you wanted to. If you can't control your sexual desires, then you know it's not you, it must be something else. These new philosophies are making people believe that they're different, that they're special, that there's something unique about the kind of thing they like to indulge in. They're not different, they're not unique, they're not special, they're just sinners just like all of us. But their sin is being given a badge of honor. The World Health Organization just gave their sin a badge of honor, of honor. The CDC has set up hotlines for youth who are transgender to call in. They, they're getting this badge of honor. They have their own 988 number now to call for emergency when they're feeling sad. They're getting this badge of honor from the world. The world is honoring their sin. The world is paying close and special attention to their sin, which is only going to make more people want to join because everybody wants to feel special. The devil is so deceptive. And in this arrogance, they believe they can ignore the word of God, but it's not so. And that is why I have spent these past weeks alerting us to the unreasonableness, the ignorance, 
and the unworkability of the primary arguments that fuel that movement. Their arguments make no sense. I just wanted to demonstrate to us that just like every other sinful idea, their argument does not stand up under God's examination. It does not stand up under the examination of nature and it does not stand up under critical thinking. Their argument is laid waste because sin cannot be justified. If you can resist the sin of sexual immorality, you should do so. Before you engage in any sexual immorality, you should at least put up a fight. If you fight and you happen to lose and you indulge in sexual immorality of any kind, just be a humble sinner. Just admit that the word of God is right and you are wrong. Just accept that reality and you may very well find an audience before God but the proud and the arrogant will not stand before God. The person who tells God that he made a mistake will not stand before him. You will not stand in the court of God and call God a liar. But at least with humility, you may stand before God. But pity on you if you stand before God in that day and you pull out some gender book to explain to him why you did what you did. There are only going to be a couple books there that day. And the gender book is not coming. There's going to be a book of judgment. There's going to be a book of eternal life. And your name is going to be written in one of those books. If you are wise, I want you to notice what I didn't say. Notice what I didn't say. I said, if you're having sexual, sexually immoral desires, Fight them as best you can. But hear me good. I fight and I fail sin sometimes. So I'm not going to stand here and try to tell you, don't do that. That's wrong. And you're going to hell because you do it. Don't do it. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is do your best not to. All of us have sins. All of us have problems. You're not special. And I'm not singling you out. What I'm singling out is the pride and the arrogance that is fueling that particular movement. If you're going to be a sinner, just be humble with it. Just accept the fact that you may be wrong because if you can't, you have no standing before God and God is not going to respect your arguments. God honors those who are repentant, those who are broken, those who are contrite. Whatever sin you're doing is not my business, is not my responsibility. It is my responsibility to alert you to the love and the grace of God that can be yours. If you will simply acknowledge the truth, accept that what you're doing is wrong, even if you continue to do it, at least accept that it's wrong. If you can't do that, you'll have no standing before God. Sons and daughters of God, if you cannot hear this message, if you walk away from this message today and you say, you know, this anti-LGBTQ and this transphobia, well, you bought, you've drunk the medicine of the world. You've drunk the world's Kool-Aid and you are off base and you are out of order. God does not lie. God loves the homosexual. God loves the transgender. God loves all of them just like he loves me. 
But God requires humility from every person. I don't care what your sin is. Your sin receives no special consideration in the house of God. You are just one sinner among many. Take your seat, bow your head, humble yourself, and God will exalt you. Even if you have sexual addiction problems, he exalts me and I have problems I cannot begin to name. But he exalts me because of humility and repentance and brokenness. Not because I have some justification for my sin. I have none. I don't know. Let's pray. Father God, you said in your word that a broken heart and a contrite spirit you will in no way despise. I thank you for your patience with me. I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you, Father God, because you understand the malady of sin under which we live. I thank you because your grace is enough. And I pray for us today. I pray for every believer and unbeliever who may listen to this message, that you will cause us to be humble, that you will change our hearts. At least if we can change our actions, at least allow us to have hearts that are humbled before you. We come before your throne, Father God, not with personal justifications, not with some movement that seeks to overturn the kingdom and create new rules, but we come to you saying that we too are a part of this sinful world and we too share in that sinful nature. And we repent for anything that we have done, anything that we will do that is contrary to your word. Help us to always be humble. Help us to always look diligently at our own hearts, to be honest with ourselves in reflection and to be honest with you about who we are and where we stand. I pray against the spirit of pride, this pride that is sweeping the nation in this sexual revolution. I pray against that spirit specifically. I pray against the arrogance that would cause people to shake their fist in your face, God. I ask that you have mercy on them. I ask that you not allow so many people to be swept up in this movement, but that you would guard the hearts and the minds of our children, of our families, of our people. That doesn't mean they're not going to turn out to be sexually immoral. What we desire more than anything is that their sexual immorality does not cause them to be lifted up with a pride that you hate. May they always have access to the means of grace that you provide through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in time, may you forgive them and save them and give them eternal life. Give them the blessing that you have given to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.